Would you hold up your glow track? Hope for families. What a wonderful glow track on the last night of a great controversy theme of our camp meeting. We go with hope for families out there. Take this seed and sow it for Jesus. Let's have a prayer over this precious seed of truth. Father in heaven, in our hands we hold a track that has your truth that carries hope. Hope for our families that are out there. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will go before us, that your Holy Spirit will impress us with whom we will share this track of hope, and that it will touch a heart for heaven. It is in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. We have been inspired. We have been enlightened. And this morning, our hearts were touched by the messages of Pastor Sean Boonstra. What a blessing it has been to have him here for our closing weekend of Camp Meeting 2018. And as he shares his final message with us at this Sabbath evening of this final day of camp meeting, I pray that you will take home a message that will knit your heart closer to Jesus. Let's join together as we pray for him and as we pray for ourselves through that song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Afresh on Me. Pastor Sean. God, our Father in heaven, this is your message, your message of hope, your message of healing, your message of peace, because you are a God of love. And you long to have us home safely. And I pray that you will anoint and embrace Pastor Sean Boonstra as he opens up the word of the living God tonight. Not only that you will bless him, but that you will open our hearts to receive the message from you to us. And for that, we share this prayer. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me and fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Amen. I have loved being here. This is a good camp meeting. A little warm, but it's good. I don't know. You guys are in for a shock when you get to heaven. I've, I've asked for 60. I've asked for 60 in heaven year-round. and Some of you are nodding. Some of you like that. We're going to look at a lot of things tonight, and I know the hour quickly gets late, and I'm an evangelist, and so evangelists tend to, well, you know what we do. 
go on and on and on. So you actually can vote tonight. I can give you a 10-minute sermon. I really can do that. Or you can have a little bit of a longer one. Which one would you want? I heard a 10-minute out there. Shame on you. You know what? Moody Moody said that Christianettes make ser- uh, sermonettes make Christianettes. That's what he said. And I'm like, all right. No, I'll, I'll try to be sensitive, but I want to share something with you tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we turn to the Word, we understand that this is not like the other books that sit on a library shelf, but this is the voice of Almighty God to our hearts. And I'm asking tonight that I could be that voice as well, not that I deserve anything like that, because I'm a sinner. And and I ask again tonight that you would cleanse me and make me fit to speak before your people. And we covenant with you tonight that when you speak from the pages of the Bible, we will respond and follow Jesus, for we pray it in his holy name. Amen. I was reading this story the other day about a very successful man. He worked all of his life very hard, and he had a great deal of success, and the time came late in life to sit back and enjoy the fruits of his labor. And it was something he really had earned because he had worked hard, and he was very successful. This guy was so successful, he could get out of bed in the morning, open the drapes in his bedroom, and he literally owned everything he saw, everything he saw. He could not see past the boundary of his own... fact, he could get on a horse and ride for two weeks in any direction and never leave his own property. I mean, that's how... And that's not because he was a rancher in Texas. I mean, that would be very impressive. And you know the Texans, they like to lie about how big the ranch is. But this guy's property really was that big because the man I was reading about is Nebuchadnezzar. He conquered the whole known world, gave us the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Not by himself. His dad gave him a running start. His dad defeated the Assyrians who had been conquering Babylon again and again and again. So dad got them out of the way and made Nebuchadnezzar tremendously successful. And now he's proud at the end of his career of what he had accomplished. He even conquered the apple of God's eye, Jerusalem. I mean, this man did a lot more than we suspect. The old temples to the Babylonian gods had been in disrepair when he took office, so he ripped them all down and built new ones. And there was a revival of Babylonian religion. They were proud of their gods again, to the point where they named their captives after the gods, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I'll give you a minute to sign that. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. He built the royal... His dad had started a royal palace, and he never finished it. So Nebuchadnezzar finished it. He imported materials from all over the world, and when he was done, other kings looked at it and said, we can't... We give up. We can't compete with that. He built that famous city wall that was so wide you could drive two chariots along the top. He built a tunnel under the Euphrates River that connected the two halves of the city. He built a bridge that was so specially engineered... The pillars were that it actually slowed the current of the Euphrates so that it would not erode the foundations of the city wall. There's a big spider web here. I'm not just... There it is. One day his wife came into his office, said, Nebi. Now, I'm not sure that she called him Nebi. We have no historical record of that at at all. You probably lost your life for doing that. But Nebi, what is it, honey? What's bothering you? Well, you know, I love living here in Babylon. It's a wonderful city, but I can't help but notice something. 
What is it, honey? Well, I'm from Persia. We have big, beautiful, snow-capped mountains over there in Persia and, and Babylon's here on the plains of Shinar. You can watch your dog run away for three weeks in this place. I, it's so flat, I miss my mountains. So he built her the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That's what he built. When people say that Babylon was a wonder of the ancient world, it's an understatement. It was so beautiful, so impressively engineered that we really don't have anything to this day that can rival it. Nothing. There's a reason that Babylon still stands out in the collective memories of the human race. He accomplished a lot. And now he's proud and it's time to rest. And at the end of his career, he does what any of us would do. Right? Pats himself on the back. Hey, job well done. And honestly, what in the world is wrong with that? We all do it, don't we? Hey, I did a good job. Except the Bible says the moment he utters one word of self-congratulation, he loses his mind. Daniel chapter 4. Now, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to start at the end of Daniel chapter 4 tonight, which is horrible chronology, and it's probably bad homiletics. If we have homiletics past uh, preachers and teachers in here, you're going to have to forgive what's about to happen because this is a one-point sermon. I know what they teach you, three points in a prayer, and then you're done. I, I'm not that sophisticated. I have one point tonight, and we're going to start at the end of the story so that you have to go home and read the beginning of the story and do a little bit of homework. So here we go. Daniel 4, verse 29. At the end of the 12 months, what 12 months? Daniel had warned him, if you remember the story, you're going to, this is going to go bad for you, Nebuchadnezzar. He ignores it for a year. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? He's thinking back over his life as he's walking around on the palace wall. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, remember that fourth grade teacher you had, the one that used to mutter about you? This kid is so dumb, he shouldn't be in this class. He wouldn't be here if his dad wasn't the king. He's dumb as a bag of potatoes, this kid. Remember your homeroom teacher, Nebuchadnezzar, the one in 11th grade who said to you one day, sat you down and said, you better learn to say, would you like fries with that, Nebuchadnezzar, because that's the only career you've got coming. Remember those teachers? Remember them? Yeah, you showed them. Look at what you built with your life. One of those teachers is now teaching in a backwater school that you demoted him to out on the edge of the empire, and the other one died on the front lines when you sent him to fight the Libyans. Oh, you sh- look at what you've accomplished. We all do that, don't we? I mean, at the end of your career, don't you deserve some kind of reward? Don't we still give people, I don't know if we literally give people a gold watch, but we give them something at the end of their career to say, well done. He accomplished a lot, more than most of us. But here's the point. He didn't accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish, and that's my one point. We could finish right now. That would be the 10-minute version right there. You can use this one life God has given you to accomplish anything and everything, but if you don't accomplish what God is asking you to do with your life, you might be successful by worldly standards, but you are disobedient. You have thrown away the one life God gave you. That's what you've done. I mean, no sooner does he congratulate himself than he hears a voice from heaven that says, in essence, that's it, Nebuchadnezzar. I've had it. You lose everything. Now, you know, in the Bible, there's only a handful of times when a voice comes from heaven. It only happens a few times, and every time it happens, it's a good indication that we all need to listen because God is speaking to all of us. I mean, think of the times it happens. John the Baptist and Jesus at the Jordan River. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We're all supposed to pay attention. 
The Ten Commandments, Moses said, out of heaven God let you hear His voice that He might instruct you. We're all supposed to pay attention to those Ten Commandments. When God speaks from heaven, it has universal application. So in this instance, everybody needs to sit up and pay attention. Daniel 4, verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. At the moment of his greatest triumph, he loses everything. What do you mean? I'm going to lose everything. It's mine. I built it. Oh, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to lose it. But that's not all you're going to lose. Verse 32. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like an oxen. Nebuchadnezzar, don't you understand what's happening here? Don't you get it? None of these people are truly loyal to you. They don't care. You don't have their hearts. You're not as influential as you think you are. They don't care about you. Once you've outlived your usefulness to these people, they're going to put you in a field. That's what they're going to do. That's one of life's most painful lessons, and we all learn it sooner or later. In this world, on this side of the resolution of the great controversy, most people only have use for you as long as you seem useful, and then they're done. That's the hard reality of this world. They don't care otherwise if you can't help them somehow. Nebuchadnezzar, don't you understand? They don't love you. They don't love you. They're not going to put you in some hospital when you lose your mind. Some pretty nurse is not going to come and feed you applesauce three times a day. You're not going to get a corner suite at Johns Hopkins with a PlayStation and a couch where your guests can sleep. Oh, no. They're going to put you in a field like an animal because you've thrown everything away. You wasted your influence. You didn't use your life the way I intended. Don't you understand, Nebuchadnezzar? I am the reason you have this kingdom in the first place. I am all you truly have in this world. And if you don't want me, I'm not going to force you. Listen, I have knocked on your door hundreds of times. I gave you the dream of the statue. I walked in the fiery furnace and you saw me and I have tried and tried and tried. But if you don't want me, I'm not going to force this. The problem is, if you don't have me at the end, you've got nothing. Nothing. And one day we'll all learn that. You lose it all. We all do eventually. It all goes. And if you don't have Jesus when it all goes, what do you have? And it all goes. Life is short, isn't it? remember sitting down with my kids. Hey, is Daddy cool? No, Dad, no, you're not cool. <laughs> but you know I was cool, right? I was really cool. No, Dad, that's just not possible. You're old and it's not cool at all. And can't believe I'm there. I used to have that discussion with my dad. No, Dad, you're not cool. It's short. It's short. And it does come to an end for all of us. There will be the last dollar you make, the last property you sell or buy, the last romance you engage in, the last campaign that you fight, the last bet that people place, the last bar will eventually close, the last lie will eventually be told, and it will come to an end. And on that day when it's all gone, what do you have? What do you have? They will drive you from men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. They will make you eat grass like an oxen. Seven times will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he chooses. At the pinnacle of his success, at the height of his career, he loses everything. And you've got to wonder, why does God do that? That seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? He's just proud of what he did. Seems like a harsh punishment. Why does God punish him so severely? Is it because of pride? I mean, that seems like the simple answer. There is some pride there. This is the kingdom that I built. He sounds a little bit like Lucifer. I will ascend to the heights. He does sound a little like... There is some pride there, but I think there's something else going on in this story. It's more than just his pride. 
I think there's a message here for God's last day people that we should not miss. There's something else here. Listen to me carefully. Follow me carefully. You remember the stories of Daniel chapter 2. You know them well. You've heard them in every evangelistic campaign you've ever gone to. And in Daniel 2, that's where you meet Nebuchadnezzar, really, for the first time in person. He's mentioned in chapter 1, but we meet him in chapter 2. And when you meet him, he's lying awake in a puddle of sweat because he's terrified of a dream that he's just had, a dream that tells him his kingdom will not last forever. It will end. And when Daniel approaches him, listen to what Daniel says. You don't want to miss this. It's simple. It's the one point tonight. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Verse 38, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over him all. Don't miss it. I mean, it's an uncomfortable reality, but who gave Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian empire? God did. You don't want to miss this. God gave him the Babylonian Empire. It's uncomfortable to think about, but God did it, and he did it on purpose. He had a design for that king. He had a plan for Nebuchadnezzar. He was supposed to be, and this is the language of the Bible, a servant of the Most High God. Look it up in your Bible. Nebuchadnezzar, the servant of God. He's not just some pagan king who's a problem for the Israelites. No, no, no. He's not some foreign godless invader who gets lucky one day and takes Jerusalem. This pagan king who conquers the world, burns down the temple, kills Zedekiah's children in front of him, then puts out the king's eyes and leads everybody captive. Somehow that guy is a servant of God, chosen by God. I know that's not... I don't like it. I don't like that at all. It's easier for us to divide the world up into us and them, isn't it? Hey, we're God's people. Those are the heathens. It's so much easier to go us and them, but the Bible doesn't make it quite that simple. I mean, look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar. God's chosen people, the Israelites, are dragged away in chains, and a pagan, idol-worshiping king is told by a Hebrew prophet, hey, God gave you this empire. It upsets my way of thinking. But the lesson's pretty clear. God will work with whoever he needs to to save a world that is lost in sin. He will use whoever he wants to. And God's purposes for his son's kingdom will never be thwarted by his people's refusal to cooperate. He'll find somebody to work with. God uses whoever he wants. Cyrus is also called God's anointed servant. Now, when you first meet Nebuchadnezzar, pretty obvious he's not ready for translation, not even close. I mean, he's still worshiping pagan idols. He's killing people for fun. But when you see the way God labors with him, agonizes with him, tenderly reaches out to him, and then you find out that he gave Nebuchadnezzar a kingdom, and you watch Nebuchadnezzar's heart melt by the end of the... Well, it's pretty obvious when you read the story. God's chosen people are not just found among the genetic Israelites. God's chosen people are not just found among the literal descendants of Abraham. I mean, that's obvious all through the Old Testament, isn't it? Melchizedek isn't Israelite. Rahab isn't. Ruth isn't. And the lesson is clear. God will use whoever he wants to accomplish his purpose. And his people right now can be found all over the globe in every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And the one assignment God has given us is to go out there and find those people and bring them home. He calls them my people, even though they're in Babylon. Now, that doesn't mean it's not important to belong to God's church. It is. But God has his people out there. He loves them. He calls some of them his servants, even though they haven't found their way home yet. And God uses Nebuchadnezzar. Why? What was God's plan for him? Well, Israel kind of blew it. They were told to be a light to the Gentiles. Read the book of Isaiah. It's what it says. And they failed at that. They became more like the nations around them. So what does God do? He finds another person of influence to help get the world out. 
the word out. Because God's work will never be stopped by our indifference. God's work in resolving the great controversy and bringing Christ into his kingdom will not be stopped because we might choose to put different items on our agenda. God's work will never be stopped because we don't find it important. Never. Israel was supposed to be the light to the world. They were supposed to... He put them in the crossroads of the ancient world so that everybody had to travel through Israel to get from anywhere to anywhere, and they would see the sacrifices and start to ask questions. Who is this Messiah that's coming? But they're so unfaithful by the end of the story. After all those wicked kings, they're taking their firstborn children and putting them in the arms of a red-hot idol named Molech, burning them to death. The devil's got to be laughing at that point because one of these days, maybe one of those firstborn will be Messiah. They're evil. So where do they go? They go back to Chaldea. That's embarrassing. Do you know why? That's where Abraham came from. They're being sent back home. Defective bride, unfaithful, go home. It's not just any nation that conquers Jerusalem. It's Chaldea. And what's happening with every embarrassing step on the way over there, the defective bride is returning home. And God picks another influential Chaldean who is nothing like Abraham at all to get the attention of the world, a man who's the opposite of Abraham. And he expects Nebuchadnezzar to do something for him because God never raises people up for no reason, never. There's always something you need to do. If God calls you, there's something he's asking you to do. And what was it with Nebuchadnezzar? Here it is, Daniel 4, verse 11. Listen. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. That's where the gospel's supposed to go. Listen carefully. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. All flesh was fed from it. Wrap your head around this. God intended Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, to be a light to the world wasn't happening in Jerusalem, so maybe it could happen in Babylon of all places. Nebuchadnezzar, you think that I gave you this kingdom by accident? You think one day in heaven we spun a globe and an angel put down his finger? Who will we bless next? It was just a coincidence? Not at all. I handpicked you. Don't you see? I gave you all this influence, all this power, all this stuff for a reason. Because God always blesses you for a reason. Makes you wonder, why was the remnant church born in America? wealthy and prosperous, get the gospel work done in a generation if we'd wanted to. God gives the remnant church favor for children of Israel supposed to be a light and they didn't do it. So he sends them to Babylon and when they get there, they get the shock of their lives. While they're out working in the fields and the salt mines, the most unlikely man on earth becomes a believer, the king of Babylon himself. And by the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar is singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. No, he's not a preacher. That's not it. Yes, it is. It's in there. Listen. Daniel 4, verse 34. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and His ways are justice. That's the song of Moses and the Lamb. Compare it. Revelation 15. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who will not fear you. At the end of the story, a pagan king is fulfilling the gospel commission. It's mind-blowing. And it tells me God will use whoever he wants. He could even use me. He could use you. He'll use whoever he wants. Because one way or another, God's going to get this message out. 
He's going to get this done. He's going to bring the controversy to a close. And I don't know about you, but I want to be there when it happens. I want to be one of the people who stands on the sea of crystal and sings that song. I wouldn't miss that for the universe. I want in. There are only two sides in this controversy. Why in the world would you pick the other one? There's nothing there for you. Nothing. Listen to me carefully. Do you you mind if I ask some tough questions? I'm going to do it whether you say yes or no. But do you mind if I ask some tough questions? Because I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to run to the airport. (laughs) Here it is. I just want to be straight with the saints, because I think we're running out of time, folks. I really do. And the fruit is dropping off the trees all around us. It really is. Question. If a stranger stood out the side the door of your church board and eavesdropped with a glass, would they be able to tell what the God-given mission of this church is? If you gave the agenda for your church business meeting to an outsider, would they be able to tell by glancing at it what we're supposed to be doing with our resources? Would they be able to tell? Would it be obvious that we had a burden for the lost? You know, as a kid, I hated poetry. I hated poetry. Oh, I hated English class. I hated history class. You're starting to, you're starting to get the idea. I hated high school. But poetry? There's only one poem I truly loved. It was that one by Lord Byron. Of all the people, I had to pick the, the pagan hedonist that I liked. And you know the one? She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies and all that's best of dark and light meet in her aspect. And I memorized that one, and I tried it out on a girl, and we've been married 25 years now. So that poem's pretty good. <laughs> that one's pretty good. But as a rule, I hated poetry. And I remember sitting in English class, maybe the 11th grade, the, maybe the 11th grade, I don't remember which year it was, and, It's a bit of a blur all those years. And I remember the English teacher droning on and on and on. I don't know what he was talking about. None of us did. In our minds, we were visiting exotic locations. We didn't have phones we could watch YouTube on. We had to imagine we were somewhere else, and it just droned on and on and on. I'm still hurting from it. It's been like 35. I'm still hurting from that class. And suddenly... 40 minutes into that blizzard of monotony, an ambulance went by the high school window. That was more of a European ambulance, but you get the point. And he stopped, and he looked out the window, and we heard him say something weird. Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Well, now we're a little bit curious. Why would he say something like that? And he saw we were paying attention. Oh, boys, he said, it's a poem by John Donne. Oh, we've been suckered. He's going to go back into poetry. He said he wrote that right after he survived a horrible disease and nearly lost his life. It's a poem about death. Now we're listening. Well, if the poet's about to die, maybe we can listen to this. He recited the whole thing. No man is an island entire. You probably had to memorize this one in school. Entire of itself, every man is a piece of the continent. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Never sin to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. And then he stopped to explain it. He said, here's what he's saying. They had a a church in every village, and they would ring the bell every time somebody died. So everybody would stop and ask, I wonder who it is. And he said, that's the wrong question. It's not, I wonder who it is. The point that John Donne is making is every time the bell rings, we all lose. Lost another human being. We all lose something. So boys, don't ask who's riding in that ambulance out there and because in a way it's all of us. Every time you hear that sound, it's you. It's the whole human race taking another hit from death. 
Man, it's been almost four decades, and I still remember what he said. We're all in this together. Every time somebody dies, you can't say, oh, I'm glad it's not me, because in a way it is. It is. We've all been made in the image of God. We all come from the same source of life. And every time somebody dies without Christ, heaven loses big. It's a piece ripped out of God's heart. Don't ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. I wonder what would happen if heaven actually rang a bell that we could all hear every time somebody went to a Christless grave. How often would that ring every day? Ding, ding, ding. It would never let up. If only we could hear it. I promise you heaven hears it, Jesus hears it, and more than that, he feels it. But most days, we we don't even think about those people. Let's be honest about it. We've even started to sanitize the way we talk about folks. We don't think of them as lost anymore. We don't dare say that because that sounds so negative in the 21st century. So we talk about people like they're misinformed or spiritually impoverished or they'd be happier and better adjusted if they came to church. That's not what the Bible says. They're lost. If they were misinformed, they just need a teacher. If they're misinformed, they just need a life coach, a positive-thinking guru. But God looked down and saw that we were dying in our sins and we would be lost forever, so He sent a Savior to save us. We can't afford to misjudge even for half a second how expensive it is for somebody to be lost. I know we don't want to say there's only one way to heaven. That's not cool anymore either, but... That is what the Bible teaches. And I, I know there will be people in heaven that have never heard the name of Jesus. I know that too. That, that's taught in the Bible, but those are the exceptions. And you don't build your theology on the exceptions, folks. Those people are covered by the blood of Christ and did the best with what they knew, but it's still through Jesus. And we cannot get around the fact that a Christless grave is a human being who's gone forever. A child of God who's not going to make it home. How often do we think about him? How often do they come up in committees and church boards or Sabbath school or at our Sabbath afternoon lunch? How often? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. I wonder how often we think about him. A little while ago, I read the story about a kid who lived in Gary, Indiana. Went to live with his stepmom and his dad after his parents split up. He was 13. When he got into that new home, he didn't find any love. And a matter of fact, they they treated him like a dog, and I don't mean figuratively. They literally made him sleep in a cage. One day in 2009, his sister came home, found him laying unconscious on a filthy mattress, and she didn't know how to revive him, but she tried, and there was no use. He was gone already. And his guardians, I, I won't call them parents, his guardians didn't call an ambulance, they didn't call the police, they didn't call a funeral home. They put his body in a garbage bag and threw him in the back of their van and disappeared for three days. When they came back, their clothes were covered with mud, and they told the sister, well, nobody will ever hear from him again. We buried him in concrete. She said, what are we going to say when people ask where he is? I said, well, we'll tell him he ran away from home. Look at this dump. Everybody's going to believe that. Except that nobody ever did ask. That boy was missing from school for two years, and nobody noticed. 
The kids didn't notice. The teachers didn't notice. Nobody noticed. And finally, the sister couldn't take it after two years and went and told her biological mother, and the police got involved. And I read that story. I wept as I read it. And I asked myself, how does a lost child become so unimportant? If we could get a transcript of all of our meetings and our church boards and our nominating committees and our elders' meetings and our church business meetings, and you held a ruler up to it and measured how much space was given to the lost. More than 20 years ago, I lived in this awful apartment. It's the best I could afford. It's closer to 30 years ago, I guess. It was, the, it was the best that I could afford at the time. And in this playground next to us, a kid went missing. His mom was playing soccer, and the child disappeared. The FBI, even though it was in Canada, suspected something big behind it because he was in all the milk cartons down here, too. His name was Michael. And for a month, we all went out and searched the neighborhood looking for Michael. Where's Michael? Calling his name. And... After a few weeks, the group grew to about half of what it was, just shrunk, and a few weeks later, just a handful more. And, and the group got smaller and smaller, and after a few months, they, they gave up. And it occurred to me the other day that I haven't thought about Michael in 30 years. People forgot. i tell you who didn't forget. His mom. She still lives with it. Where is he? God doesn't forget these people. Can a woman, Isaiah writes, forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. Yet I will not forget you. See, I have you inscribed on the palms of my hands. What, what if we could hear a bell every time somebody went to a Christless grave? We, we can't. What if we were to introduce a moment of silence into our prayer lives every day, just one minute, and we thought about them. You, you know some of them. Who are they? God knows who they are. And there's only one thing He's ever asked us to do. One thing. A very successful and influential man came to the end of his long and successful career, and now it was time to enjoy the fruits of his labor because he had earned it. Oh, wow, did he have a successful career. He's so successful that when he gets out of bed in the morning, he can look out the drapes and he can own everything as far as he can see. Not because he's living on some big ranch in Texas, not at all. This guy could get on a horse and ride forever in any direction and never leave his property because this man is Jesus. A man who conquered the whole universe with unbeatable love and a cross. And on one particular morning in glory, he goes looking for somebody he knows very, very well. And as he gets close to the new Jerusalem, he sees that man walking around on the roof of his new mansion. And as he gets close, he listens and he hears the man say, Is not this great Jerusalem that Jesus built? Nebuchadnezzar, welcome home. Lord, it's so beautiful. I get it now. I get why I was nothing. I get why Babylon was nothing. It's so beautiful. And then he sees the scar in Jesus' hand. What's that? How is it you have a scar here in heaven? That's right, Nebuchadnezzar. You don't know the rest of the story. And Jesus sits down with him and explains the cross. And as the tears well up in the eyes of the king of Babylon... He said, you really did go through the fiery furnace, didn't you? You really did. 
Imagine, I thought Babylon was great. And he pauses a moment and he tries to collect himself because he's, he's crying. How did you know, Jesus? Why didn't you just give up? Well, because I knew, Nebuchadnezzar, the moment you were born, I watched you. I followed you your whole life. I knew I could save you. I knew you would come home, and that's why I sent all of my people to come and get you. One person. Seems to me, Nebuchadnezzar, it was well worth it. Welcome home. I don't know if you can imagine the king of Babylon at home in heaven, but he's going to be there. If God has given you what you have in this world, there's a reason for it. Go and find another one. We're running out of time. If it took everybody in this world, everybody in this room, to win another Nebuchadnezzar, it'd be worth every penny. You know, people always ask when you're about to do an evangelistic program, is it really worth it? It's so expensive. Yeah, it's a lot more expensive than you think. Christ paid for it with his life. I discovered years after I joined the church that the church had a debate when they held those meetings, and they all said, you know what, it's just so many, it's too expensive, it's not worth it, and it's so much work. I thank God every day that the pastor prevailed upon them and they held those meetings or I wouldn't be up here tonight. Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Don't miss one. Don't miss one. We were asked to do one thing, and it's the only thing that matters in the end. It's the only thing that's going to matter in heaven. The building committee won't matter when you get there. Nominating committee won't matter when you get there. None of it's going to matter what you get there. But when you meet that person sitting in heaven and they're crying because they can't believe they're home, that's worth it. Don't miss it. Christine, come sing for us, and then I'm going to close with you in prayer.
you something because they're going to close the camp meeting in a few minutes and I don't want that to end without asking you honestly it's one thing we were asked to do one I still don't know how to do it I've been working on it for 25 years but I, I, I still don't know how to do it and maybe you don't know what to do either but in these last hours together have you felt God tap you on the shoulder saying I'm calling you you need to do something have you heard him speak to you? I'm going to ask you to stand if you heard him. This is not a y'all stand, but stand if you heard him. How oh, gracious Father in heaven, I know heaven aches for us to come home. Angels are sitting on the edge of their seat waiting to come and get God's children, and yet some are still waiting to come in. This is your army in the Carolina Conference. We don't always know what to do, but we're willing. It scares us, but we're willing. We will share Jesus with somebody. Show us that person this week. Let us love them like Christ would. Let them see in us that we have found hope, and let them hope for it themselves. May they be standing with us when Jesus comes. For we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I think you may be seated. Is that right? Be seated for half a minute because there's just one more thing.
Can you say thank you, Pastor Sean Boonstra? I must really believe in evangelism because I increased the membership of the Carolina Conference to 250,000 members. I didn't realize I said that. It's more like 23,000. When we have 250,000, we'll have two Lake Junaluska camp meetings. How about that? I do have some very wonderful news, though. I just got word that last year our camp meeting evangelism resulted in $123,139. And this year, this year, our camp meeting evangelism funds were $167,897. Praise God. Thank you so much for your support of Carolina Evangelism. Let's finish the work so we can go home. There is a very special person here tonight that I want to recognize before we close this camp meeting. There are actually two groups, but one person in particular. I want to have Pastor John Huskins come up here. Pastor John Huskins has been the program director for our camp meeting for the last 12 years. And he is retiring. He's the pastor of our Fayetteville Church. This is the only conference that he's been a pastor in. He has pastored in this conference for 44 years. We were both in college together, and I was his RA. I made sure he was tucked in bed every night. You know, he came here to Carolina, and I went all over the place, and finally God brought me back to Carolina. And, uh, you know, I tell you what, I, it was such a joy for me last year to work together with him on a series of meetings in his church. And I tell you, this is a hardworking man. And those of you who were here this afternoon saw and heard one of the most powerful and wonderful and moving, probably the best sermons for an ordination service I have ever seen. It was very touching. Pastor John, we're going to miss you a lot. You have been a tremendous blessing as our program director for camp meeting here. And all the programs that you've seen, you know, he's been in the background making sure everything flows well. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all that you've done. Let's extend our gratitude to Pastor John Huskins. Thank you. As we close our camp meeting this evening, I want to invite my fellow colleagues and the, uh, your officers from the Seventh-day Adventist headquarters, to, uh, along with our spouses, to join us up here on the platform this evening. I'd like to also invite all of our church treasurers and assistant church treasurers and the entire treasury team from the Carolina Conference to come up and join us here on the platform. If you are a church treasurer or an associate church treasurer, 
we want to honor you today. It's our customary practice at the end of every camp meeting to affirm and uplift in prayer a very special group who've been dedicated to a specialized ministry in fulfilling Christ's calling and commission. God has blessed each of you with a sacred trust with spiritual gifts of administrative management of God's resources, discernment in helping the church fulfill its mission, and to set an example of faithful and generous living. God has blessed you with an understanding of biblical stewardship. He has gifted you with skills and abilities in financial matters and the ability to keep detailed and accurate records, to maintain confidentiality, and supporting the mission of making Christian disciples for the transformation of your church communities and the wider mission of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus. God has blessed you with an honest conviction and a deep-seated consecration to work for the unity and desire to be in harmony with your pastoral team, your local church board, and your conference as the storehouse for God's tithes and his offerings. To you tonight, to these that are here, and all those who are not here who are serving in that capacity, we render our heartfelt gratitude and appreciation this evening. And we pray this prayer for God's continued blessing on your ministry of service for Christ and for his church. Shall we pray? Our gracious Father and our God, we ask your blessing upon these men and women of our church to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You have gifted each of them with heavenly wisdom and financial discernment. In managing your sacred resources, help them in all of the interactions with one another to have humble and genuine hearts. Grant them patience for one another, bearing with one another in love. And by their leadership and influence, may they rejoice in the unity of the body of Christ. May they walk humbly with you. O Lord, bless each of them and their families with health and happiness as they continue to faithfully walk with Jesus and to serve his church. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we close this camp meeting, let's join hands as we stand and join hands across the aisles as we sing, God be with you till we meet again. The words will be up on the screen, and so let's join hands across the aisle. God be with you till we meet again. By his counsels guide uphold you. With his sheep securely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. Till we meet. Till we meet. Till we meet at Jesus. Till we meet, till we meet, God be with you till.
sparrows thick confound you. Put his arms unfailing round you. God be with you till we meet again. Till we Jesus be till we meet till we meet God be with you till we meet again God be with you till we Neath his wings protecting hide you. Daily manna still provide you. God be with you till we meet again. Till we meet. Till Jesus feet till we meet till we meet God be with you till we meet again and now may the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. May God bless you and keep you till we meet again. <laughs>